Welcome to non-obvious. Okay, thank you. All right, so we're very excited um, to have Francis Gurry, one of the all-time all stars in IP with us. Um, and it should be very interesting. And my one concern is there's so many things that would be relevant and that he done that he's done. And I want to ask him about current affairs, past affairs. I just hope we have enough time. But starting off, Francis, what country are you from? <clears throat> Hugh, I am from Australia. And let me say it's a great pleasure to be seeing you here and to be doing this on your world famous program. Oh, oh, thank you very much. Now, interestingly enough, ladies and gentlemen, you may not know this, but in IP for many years, it was the people from Australia who were basically running the show. Uh, you had Bill Cornish, you had uh, Lahore. Uh, Jim Lahore, yeah. Um, and so, in, I'm talking about it in the UK specifically, um, and the they were fantastic uh, and uh, really knew what they were talking about and got IP and copyright and off on a, on a on a a good start. Um, so, all right, you were born in Australia. Tell us a little bit about your life as a growing up in Australia. Uh, well, look, um, that's a, a direction I was not uh, expecting, Hugh, but always with you, it's nice to have these um, little uh, uh, surprises. Um, well, I'm, of course, a very old creature now, uh, and I grew up, so my, um, I was born in actually a working-class suburb of the city of Melbourne. Uh, my father was a general practitioner. I was one of seven children. You know, great tribe. Um, and, um, uh, well, the Australia that I grew up in the 1950s uh, as a child, because I was born in 51, uh, and at the beginning of the 60s was a very different place from the one it is now. It was monochrome, monocultural, um, and, uh, uh, yes, there was post-war immigration that was starting to come in, mainly from the Mediterranean basin, you know, it went all around the Mediterranean basin, starting at Italy and then Greece and then uh, what was Yugoslavia and so on. <clears throat> um, and, of course, these days, if you go to Australia, it's a very different place. It's... it's um, uh, you know, nearly eight or eight to ten percent of the population is Asian in origin. Um, two thirds of uh, the country, uh, either they or their parents were born outside of Australia. Wow. Uh, almost one third, about twenty nine, thirty percent of the population was born outside of Australia. This has done nothing but good for the country. It's a much more interesting place. Um, uh, and so it's a very different place from the one that I grew up in. And even I came to Geneva in 1985, you see, and uh, from the city from which I come, Melbourne, was then, you know, approaching 2 million population. Now it's about 5, 5.5 million. So I always say that Melbourne hasn't stopped improving since I left it. You know? 
<laughs> okay. So no desire to go back on retirement to Australia. Well, look, you do these things to yourself, you know. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I um, would not have any pretense of saying that my life has in any way been planned. It, it's happened. And um, <clears throat> I originally came to Geneva for two years or so. Well, it's 35 now. Uh, but in between time, I've uh, been fortunate to have children who have grown up here. Uh, for them, this is what they recognise as home. <clears throat> they have a, an Australian heritage. They have a French heritage from their mother. Uh, <clears throat> and those are extremely important. But this is where they've grown up. So now, uh, you know, my children are basically here. I do have one daughter in Oslo uh, in um, who's working there. But she basically is Geneva-based. Uh, uh, and um, uh, so, yeah, I'll stay here. But, of course, I keep contact with Australia. I have five brothers and one sister in Australia. All right, so you've just retired. Uh, no, not yet. Not retired. You you no longer are. I would, no, I still am until 30 September. I was going to say until uh, whatever. Um, and, uh, so is this going to be your whole life is around, you know, 35 years or something in a W5 uh, IPO. Uh, now you're sort of creating a new path. Um, is that exciting? Is it, is it, oh, I have to do this or what? No, no, it's, I'm looking, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to this transition with great enthusiasm, you know, uh, because of course, <clears throat> as you know, being a civil servant and or an international civil servant, you're constrained in certain ways. Um, you can't say exactly what you think all the time, you know, because that's not your role. People are not. Uh, necessarily interested in the director general's personal view about something. They're interested in the director general facilitating an international discussion in which there's a great diversity of uh, opinions, as well as managing. You know, we have an important management task with uh, the various systems that we run. Uh, so now I will feel a, much, a liberation in being able to express my own personal thoughts uh, much in a much more forthright manner. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to doing different things, you know. Uh, I'm going to do, well, look, you know, that's, <clears throat> we can talk about that, but it's, um, uh, I'll do a little bit of teaching, I'll do a little bit of consulting, I'll do, um, you know, a few things, maybe a little dispute resolution. Um, and, uh, uh, I look. I just. I'm full of enthusiasm at the prospect. Uh, plus, Francis, uh, my guess is you're going to make a fortune. Uh, look, uh, Hugh. Yeah. Well, whatever. Uh, I'm whatever, not sure this is going to be the case, but this would be good. Yes. But who would not want? You know, I'm just thinking. I'm a client somewhere. Who would not want? You know, to bring on Francis Curry. So I think you're going to have people pounding on your door. All right. So. Nobody knows this, but the WIPO is really a agency of the United Nations. That's how it started. I think everyone thinks of it as completely independent, not technically, but the world thinks of it because you are independent. You really were not beholden yeah. to what the United States was telling you to do or whatever as a WIPO, were you? No, look, um, first, we, are, we predate the UN. 
So uh, the origins of this organisation go back to the 1880s. And that, you know, that's one track in itself that I think is quite interesting. Because if you go to the 19th century, uh, you had four international organisations that were founded, and I'll give you their current names, their names have changed over time. Uh, and in chronological order, it was the IT, the International Telecommunication Union, that was the Telegraph, the World Meteorological uh, Organisation, the Universal Postal Union, and WIPO. Now, two things that are interesting about that, I think. One, um, that uh, intellectual property at the end of the 19th century had uh, an international significance which was sufficiently important to build an international organisation and on the same level as, you know, exchange of meteorological data to make weather services work, <coughs> postal services fundamental, you know, um, and uh, the telegraph. So where they were constructing a worldwide telegraph, you know, of course, not, not the ITU, but a member state, the UK at, at, the, at the beginning. Uh, and the US extremely important. Now, that's one interesting thing. So, you know, when we tend to think now that intellectual property has assumed uh, a very important position, it did have it um, in some respects already uh, in the 19th century. The second interesting thing is that those four agencies still exist and arguably, at least I would argue, are still doing a good job in their respective field. And in between time, the League of Nations has been born and died. The United Nations has been born and is subject to enormous stresses and tensions. Uh, uh, the cla the uh, classical multilateral architecture. So it's a testimony to the endurance of technical international cooperation. That when you get specialists and experts. Um, talking about a subject matter, they can communicate with each other and interact. And a lot has been done, of course, in the 140 or so years uh, since the, the organisation began. And it's also uh, a warning that we should try to keep politics out of technical discussions as much as possible. Now, of course, that is a dream now because we live in a world where, of course, the centre of tensions between countries is technology and technological supremacy because it's it's the key to competitiveness, <clears throat> it's the key to competitive advantage and to so many things that we you know we're familiar with in the intellectual property world, um, and so you can't quite keep it out. Uh, but I, I sort of think that what my argument will always be. Um, that here in WIPO, we're a little island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And on this little island, you know, uh, what happens is that which has been agreed. And our efforts to try to agree, you know, expand that, let's say, 7 10% of the whole of intellectual property. Um, and on the high seas, well, we know there's a lot of piracy that goes on and so on, and uh, countries deal with that in their own ways. So we have to, at one, one, on the one hand, preserve our, okay, you're here because this is what we agree about. Uh, and out there, of course, 
lots of other stuff is happening bilaterally. There are tensions all over the place and so on. So that's how I would see it. And then it is very important that, of course, on this space that has been agreed, which is only a microcosm, it's an island in the middle of the big ocean, uh, on the, in that area, um, I, I think it's very uh, important that we try to maintain it as free as possible from extraneous political circumstances. Now, extraneous political circumstances are different from those political circumstances that might be directly related to intellectual property or technology or, you know, extraneous. So if someone is at war for completely, uh, you know, other reasons, I don't think that that should be coming into our sphere, if possible. What about, all right, so we have a almost uh, cold, maybe a hot war to some extent in technology, and you have China, Russia, the US, uh, all sorts of things going on, which certainly make it different difficult for them to agree. The United States didn't go with TPP when they should have. But the whole thing is, is, is a mess. But take that away, you still have develop and developing countries and a development agenda. And at WIPO, uh, in the beginning, it, it, developing countries were happy to do with develop, developed countries. Then they had their own agenda. To what extent did that have an effect on what the uh, WIPO was doing? It has a huge effect, obviously. Um, and look, the way I would see it is that throughout the last hundred years or so, and different periods, of course, you've had two great axes, axes. You know, you've had the north-south axis and you've had the east-west axis. Uh, and the east-west axis, of course, the Cold War and everything that happened during that time, um, where technology was very relevant. Uh, it was very relevant in terms of the space race, uh, as you know, between Russia, United States of America, first person in space, first man on the moon, etc. Um, so uh, it was there and, of course, fundamentally important to military um, uh, capacity. Uh, and then you had the north-south axis. Uh, and the north-south axis, you know all about develop, developing, um, and it's been through various iterations and it's always there. Uh, and there is somehow a lingering, you know, feeling that technology is uh, a means of asserting supremacy. And, um, uh, you know, that may, that may or may not have any correspondence to, to truth and reality, but that lingering feeling is there. Now, what's happened, of course, with the rise of China and the collapse, dissolution of the Soviet Union is that the east-west axis has been transformed. And the east-west axis has been transformed by the rise of a country which certainly from the east, you know, China, uh, but um, it was a developing country. And it still claims to be a developing country. So you get a bit of a merger of these two axes of north, south, and east, west in the new situation. Um, and uh, well, it's in play, as you say, we don't know how this is gonna come out. But I personally think that the fact that China has been a developing country is enormously significant for, uh, uh, well, both axes really, but, but for the north, south axis, because uh, it's an example amongst others 
of a country uh, from the south that has uh, acquired a technological capacity which is equivalent to many, if not uh, all, you know, but many uh, in the north. Uh, and that's an example. Now, look, when you look at China, lots of people make a lot of criticisms of China, as, as you know, sitting in the United States of America, and I'm agnostic to all of that uh, in various ways, uh, but because um, what we have recognised with China is that, first of all, it adopted a pattern law in 1985, 1984. Uh, and at that time, the whole Soviet bloc, the East, the socialist bloc, not one country had a patent law because patents are private property. Uh, they had what they called an inventor's certificate. Uh, and that is, you know, you invented something, you got a certificate and a miserable prize and the state owned the invention. It's a completely different system. But the whole of the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Bloc, operated under that system. Well before we even thought about the <coughs> possibility of the collapse of the Soviet Union, China adopted in 1984 a patent law, private property. And that was an extraordinary choice. And it's very influential because um, they looked around the world as they do and they chose, they said, this is the model we'll follow. Uh, because it laid the basis also for a market economy was one of the instruments laying the best for a market economy. We can all argue about, you know, the extent to which it's a state-directed capitalism and so on and so on and so on. This is, a, 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 you know, another question. But you have to recognise uh, that that was an extremely important historical event. And you have to recognise also that since then, in 1984, they've gone to the position where last year they became... Uh, the largest source of international patent applications under the PCT. That's quite a journey in 40 years. Uh, and I think we have to put these things in historical perspective. I know there's a lot of stuff happening in this space, you know, at the moment. Um, but in historical, if we take a longer term historical perspective, uh, we know that China uh, was a... Uh, a major, major scientific power uh, until 1800. You know, the source of so many inventions, whether the compass, you know, uh, paper, the, the printing press um, originally, um, gunpowder, you go on, you know, you can name the, the list. So uh, I don't see the rise of China as the arrival of something new. It's the re-establishment of something that was there. And China, let not forget, used to generate, before 1800, approximately 25% of world GDP. So in the heat of all the discussions that we see in the accusations and the recriminations and this, that and the other, all of which is going on, and which I'll make another comment about, we have to, you know, get a broader historical perspective of what is going on here. Um, and, uh, and as far as, uh, you know, all of those um, accusations, recriminations and so on, well, look, there are various ways in which you can look at it. And I know this is a very large question. It's even larger than technology, if that is possible. 
Um, and uh, it's a very large question, lots of stuff. We don't have full transparency into what is going on. We don't know all the facts. But um, uh, for me, I think uh, it is very important uh, to recognise that there is always and always will be competition between major powers. Okay. All right, Francis. We got to get back to just some straight IP here. Uh, uh, I think it's fascinating. Uh, the uh, okay. Some basic questions. WTO are they a player at all anymore, or what's going on with them? Well. Uh, there is a systemic uh, or existential challenge to WTO. I'm not going to talk about that, okay? Uh, and that's, of course, coming from the United States of America uh, in the current administration. That's, you know, not my uh, business. In the IP world, well, um, of course, the establishment of the TRIPS agreement was a fantastically important event in, in the world of intellectual property. Uh, and it changed the scene in many, many ways. Um, <clears throat> and I think now we have to recognise that we're almost 30 years on from that, 40 years on from that, is it? Uh, 30 years on from that. It was uh, early 90s, 1994, I think, when it came into force. Uh, and we're getting towards 30 years on. Well, a lot has happened. The world has changed since then. Uh, in terms of normative instruments, uh, since then, well, we had the 1996 uh, COP, uh, internet treaties. We had uh, the Beijing Treaty to complement those. Uh, we've had the Marrakesh Treaty. We've had the Patent Law Treaty. We've had the Singapore Treaty on, uh, you know, law of trademarks. <clears throat> There's been quite a lot of movement. Um, and uh, what WTO has never had uh, is the uh, the system operational systems that we have with the PCT, Madrid, the Hague Agreement, Arbitration Centre, they have only been a negotiating forum. Now, for good or bad reasons, whatever, negotiating for, as a negotiating forum, it's rather frozen at the moment. Uh, so if there is any action, it tends to be in WIPO. Uh, okay. But of course, you know, yeah. we know that the rulemaking activity is, is rather limited at the moment. Okay, multilateral treaties, which were, uh, I think, a, a great boon and way to move forward. Um, are we at a period where it's all going to be plurilateral and bilateral, or is there still room for multilateral? Yeah, so look, I make two comments on that. I think the first comment is that, is that um, there is um, a, a recognition that you can cooperate internationally in a variety of ways and not just by concluding a treaty. Okay, so uh, traditionally for many years, 100 years maybe, the major means of international cooperation was treaties, you know, through treaties. You did an agreement with someone that you'd do this, that, the other thing. And, uh, and a lot of uh, progress was made there. Um, so what we're seeing now is that uh, through the internet and through platforms, you can actually do a lot of practical international cooperation. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's take the Marrakesh Treaty as an example. <clears throat> so the Marrakesh Treaty establishes two important rules. One is uh, that you must, as a contracting party, have an exception uh, under which an accessible format of a published work can be created in certain circumstances. And number two, 
those exceptions at the national level talk to each other to facilitate the exchange, the cross-border exchange of works in accessible formats. Now, that creates the enabling platform. Um, it doesn't move one book. You know, you've got the possibility of moving books, but it doesn't move any. To move a book, you need a different form of cooperation. And that we've got through our Accessible Books Consortium, where we have all relevant stakeholders in the value chain of, of, of publication involved. We have authors, uh, publishers, libraries, rights-owning organisations, uh, and other dis distribution platforms. And we have, of course, the World Blind Union and various blind associations uh, uh, involved. So uh, what they have come together and we've under our auspices, and we now have an, a repertoire of over 600,000 titles in accessible formats in over 90 languages. And the average municipal library has about 30,000 titles in it. So this is a fantastic thing, and they're available for free exchange under the Marrakesh enabling platform amongst the contracting parties in the Marrakesh. So with uh, the development of technology, essentially, uh, we have been able, I think, to see that forms of international cooperation now are more complex and they're not just treaty-based. Now, all of that said, and I could give you other examples, but all of that said, <clears throat> um, let's also recognise that, in my view at any rate, there is an essential role for treaties that establish rules uh, and, you know, maybe you don't need 100,000 treaties, but you need some, and I think maybe we need to give more thought to what really is needed at the international level. In the 19th century, they said what's needed at the international level is a priority period for, uh, you know, um, for uh, designs and patents and trademarks, uh, and what is needed is national treatment, uh, and what is needed is, you know, the publication, simultaneous publication. Once you publish in one burn country, you publish in all. Uh, <clears throat> and they were framework rules. Uh, now, it's not necessary for to do at the international level absolutely everything. You know, there are other levels that might be relevant and you needn't go into such great detail at the international level, but you do need some rules. And it's a very worrying thing that we're now at a stage where the capacity of the international community to develop new rules is exceptionally limited. Okay. Let me ask you a little more uh, some other specific things. The unitary patent system... Uh, and the Unitary Patent Court. Uh, are those viable? Is Brexit messing it up? Is Germany messing it up? What's going on with that? Well, I'm not a great specialist there. And, um, uh, you know, it's European business. Um, <clears throat> of course, uh, Brexit was a potentially great threat. But I think, in my understanding, the British did the right thing. They they uh, ratified the convention to enable it to come into force uh, with the intention that they would, you know, go their own way afterwards. Uh, <clears throat> now, Germany has, of course, through their court decision, um, invalidated, uh, really, uh, uh, the whole process. It's a big challenge. I don't know, um, <clears throat> you know, 
I'm not a specialist in this area and I don't know how they're going to get out of it, what's going to happen, what the evolution will be. But it's a big challenge, obviously, for European integration and European, the way in which Europeans, um, you know, the path forward for Europe, which is obviously one of the great geopolitical questions uh, that's out there at the moment. And, and this is another example, if you like, of <clears throat> an expression of the tension that they are feeling within Europe in creating the European whatever, you know, idea, expressing the European idea. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, it's interesting about German. The uh, uh, European Union has a rule that every EU law is superior to member state law, but Germany constitutional court still thinks it can declare an EU law or decision unconstitutional in Germany and nobody says boo to them. Why doesn't someone just shake them and say, what on earth are you thinking about? Yep. <clears throat> I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. AI. Is that the end of all of us? It's just going to be basically watching robots and uh, maybe we'll be drinking you know, tea or die. My, my view is, 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 um, and, and again, you know, I'm liberally views about things that I don't necessarily know anything about, but uh, that's never stopped me. Um, so, uh, look, my view is, first of all, I'm a believer that technology does not replace employment, it displaces it. You know, so if you go back to the start of the computer revolution, as it were, then you had a lot of expressions of concern from people, oh, God, you know, all of the, uh, the jobs will disappear and they'll all be replaced by computers. Well, you know, some jobs have disappeared, but we've had the whole IT industry be born. And all I think of all the employment that's been generated through the IT industry. So it is a displacement of employment rather than a replacement of employment. Employment moves to the higher value level all the time and i think it'll be similar with ai um personally okay now, doesn't that displacement favor the highly educated and these lowly educated are not going to get anything are they well that's world history isn't it yeah you know and and that's you know where people um seriously are trying to tackle the the, the challenge that we call development um, and, um, and, and let's face it, there hasn't been huge success there. We've got, we've seen Korea, we've seen Singapore, um, you know, in the space of 40 years, we've seen China in the space of 40 years, but overall, uh, there's not been huge changes. Of course, standards of living gone up everywhere. Well, I think we are seeing India, you know, um, uh, you know, there, uh, it, it's a, it's a big challenge for me. You know, what's fundamental to this is the development of technological capacity. And that leads to a question of, so what does the international community do to develop international uh, capa technological capacity in countries for just the reason that you cite, uh, Hugh, namely, if they don't do something about this, they're going to be screwed again or they're going to be left behind again. So uh, what does we do? Well, 
I would argue, and now I can be a little bit, you know, I, would be, I will be a little bit more liberated in my speech, that some of the tools chosen uh, have been, in my view, complete failures. So one of those tools was transfer of technology. Well, I look back at the 40 years or so of, of uh, discussions on transfer of technology, and I think it's a complete shambles, complete chaos. We don't have moves around the world for the transfer of oil, free, you know, energy free. Uh, so it's a non-recognition of the fact that technology is a factor of production. It's a fundamental element in, in your competitive structure. And who is going to give that away free? You're going to say, okay, you can take it all. Here, uh, take our competitive advantage that we have invested in. So the, in the first place, I think it's unrealistic. Uh, and I'm not arguing here on, you know, in Manichaean terms of good or bad, or it just it's unrealistic practically. And secondly, <clears throat> I think uh, there is a total confusion between public rights and private rights in this whole transfer of technology business. States can't undertake obligations uh, to transfer the technology that in law belongs to private corporations and private citizens. That's never been clarified. You know, the amount of technology owned by the state is important, maybe, but it's not as important as the amount of technology uh, uh, that is owned by the competitive market uh, structure and the competitive market structure. That's what you're talking about, you know, how you be able to compete in that space. So they can't even do it. You know, they can facilitate certain things, say training and this, that and the other. So for me, that, that has all been um, really a, a complete wild goose chase. Uh, and I think that what we should be focusing on is the development of local technological capacity. Uh, first, and secondly, the acquisition of foreign technology. So the two elements to it. Now the development of local technological capacity is a complicated matter goes from everything from the educational system to your tertiary institutions, your research institutions, <clears throat> to the availability of capital, uh, capital markets, uh, to having sophisticated business sophistication. It's a very complex matter and it's a long-term task, as we've seen, because those who have done it on the fast track have taken 40 years, like Korea or Singapore or or China, um, with massive focus and concentration. Uh, and then the acquisition of foreign technology, well, you know, it's, it's quite, uh, quite a task also. But some countries have done this. Japan did this after the Second World War, you know, in a very measured manner of acquiring. You remember they took the license on the transistor from Bell Laboratories in the 1950s. Sony did uh, the, the incipient enterprise of Sony, got it going. Uh, but they did this. So these are complex questions. And to reduce them to an simplification of saying, transfer all your technology, for me, is just a pipe dream and leads to endless discussions which don't have really any meaning. Yeah, well, India 
can some people think India is basically saying transfer all your technology to us free because they've created rules which give relatively little protection to patents and others. Um, what do you think of that? I mean, what do you do with India? Well, you know, um, <clears throat> I'm not going to subscribe uh, to your view, Hugh, naturally, um, that uh, <laughs> that's exactly what they've done. But, um, and it is a special case, India, you know, it's a 1.3 billion people, huge place, massive, uh, you know, challenges in every single respect that you can think. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, that they have been very hostile to intellectual property at uh, various stages in, in the last 50 years or so. Uh, I think there are changes that are occurring, you know, in the, in the last several, in the last 10 years, we've seen India, you know, join the Madrid system, join uh, uh, various other international treaty platforms. Uh, they haven't changed one centimetre on questions of uh, health, patents and access and so on. They're still in exactly the same place. There they have a, a competitive interest in that they have some of the biggest generic pharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, I think we have to look behind sometimes the rhetoric uh, and look at what the real commercial interests are and what's going on. Um, and uh, of course, India is trying to advance. Uh, they're very conscious of their neighbor to the north, which has gone on a very fast track uh, down, uh, down the path. Uh, they're wanting to catch up. I think it's a very complex question um, and uh, it's a very complex country. Um, I think that we have seen positive signs in the last 10 years. A lot of people would say not enough. Okay, let's go to some smaller issues. Plain packaging in Australia. Um, Wonderful because the view is it's going to reduce people smoking and getting cancer and everything else. The developing countries that grow tobacco, very upset, filed an action, I guess it was WTO or something, and they lost. What is your take on all that? Oh, my personal take is, uh, and you know, I'm someone, as, as you know, who smoked. Um, am smoke? I personal? Sorry? You still smoke? No, I smoked past tense. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, so, you know, I um, uh, let he use without sin cast the first stone. Um, I think, think that it's a very good thing. I think it's a very good thing that has happened. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no doubt that for me, the whole advertising world is a world that we haven't looked at in in very much detail. You know, we go back. You go back to the 1960s. You had Vance Packard, Packard there with the Hidden Persuaders. You know, telling us that advertising is something that we have to be aware has significant social impact. Uh, and heaven knows, everything that's happened since then only reinforces that with all of the advertising to which we are subject on the internet huge amounts of advertising. So um, we know that this has an impact and to take out, um, to insist on plain packaging, 
seems that the evidence, you know, is not out there fully, seems to have had some impact. Uh, I think it's a good thing. Um, uh, and uh, I think it, it was entirely within the rules, which has been vindicated by the WTO. Let me ask you, is this something that could be misused by countries that want to take yeah. away high brand value of foreign works coming in and or not? Yeah. Not so look, health by calling it out, but just misuse. Let me, let me take, uh, if I can quickly, because I talked too much, two, two comments. One, it's very interesting what you said. It upset developing countries who are producers of tobacco, you know. And at the same time, we have a big debate about uh, all intellectual no, no, property. Let's get off. I want to get off the bat. We don't have enough time. To, I agree okay. with you. I'm gonna just take this plain package. Okay, so I think the systemic, the systemic question that arises from, from plain packaging, which is a legitimate question, is... To what extent can you use the intellectual property system to implement <clears throat> objectives which don't belong to the system? So, you know, we know the intellectual property system is there to in create innovation incentives, market order for, for uh, trademarks and so on, all the classical reasons for, why, for which we have intellectual property. Now, to what extent can you use it to achieve a separate public policy? In this case, health, right? Uh, but, you know, the, it might be tax. Uh, it might be genetic resources where you are saying we want a disclosure requirement, not because it's in any way going to help the evaluation of whether the uh, invention is patentable, but because it will help us to police or uh, have surveillance on the implementation of the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversities, uh, uh, you know, obligation of prior informed consent uh, for taking genetic resources. Now, that's a big thing because as intellectual property becomes more and more important in the social and economic system, the temptation to use this system that's there to achieve other public policies is going to grow. And that's, that's the thing that causes some people to say plain packaging was not a good idea because it's got nothing to do with intellectual property. I don't happen to have subscribed to that, but that's the systemic danger. Okay, good. So uh, France, when they stopped believing in God, started believing in geographical indications, uh, which is a secular religion there. Uh, I view that as just a government conspiracy to control markets. I mean, Australia, you, I'll give you this geographical indication you take us, and it's almost a horizontal restraint of trade. You can't even say we're better than or something else. Um, I guess that's not going anywhere, but isn't that a little bit ridiculous? Well, I think it's a question of degree, you know? Um, I... Uh, do not have any objections whatsoever to the notion of a title, intellectual property title, geographical indication, going to the producers of a product that owes its special characteristics to the uh, attributes to the uh, characteristics of the geography, including the human factors involved. I have no problems with that. I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing. Then it's a question of how far you go with that. You know, so um, when you say 
you know, you can't use the colour tawny or you can't use this and so on and so on. Uh, then we're at the limits of, that we're always on, at in intellectual property of, you know, <clears throat> where is the balance in the system? Um, and uh, so I think GIs are perfectly legitimate, uh, but it's a question of being balanced about it. Okay. Um, traditional knowledge, which you don't hear too much about, but it was a way of developing countries who have developed this stuff and are able to protect it, even though it doesn't fit into the normal IP rules, um, which I actually think that's something we should do. If, if my if biotech companies are going into this place and getting a, a solution as a result of what these people put together, I think there should be some protection. But uh, what do you think on this? Uh, yeah, I, look, I'm in your camp, Hugh. Um, I, but, but, but it is complex. Uh, now, basically, you have two different, completely different systems. You have one system based on contract and property, the Western system, and you have another system based on kinship and custodianship, two different concepts. And you can't reconcile those systems. They're two completely different systems evolving from different human evolution uh, and social evolution. What you can do is manage the interface between the two systems. And I think we have to do. So I don't personally think that it's a good idea or even respectable behaviour to take a name that is sacred in some traditional system and to use it as a commercial mark in the other system. I think we have to define how we manage that interface. You've done it in the US. You know, there was a, at one stage <coughs> a, uh, a bourbon uh, introduced um, uh, with the name of a venerable uh, Sioux warrior um, uh, associated with it. Uh, and Congress at the time uh, appended to an appropriations bill a, a prohibition of that. And I don't see any difficulty with us developing an international system which requires a bit of um, um, respect. I mean, Crazy Horse is a, 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 you know, a venerated Indigenous leader um, from historical leader in the United States. It's also a strict parlor in Paris. You know, um, so let's move on from the names to actually the content. So we're not now talking about a name, but we have come up with a drug through this plant or something, a development country. Yeah. Uh, and Biotech comes in, did no research or anything, and just goes in and basically takes that wholesale and uses it. That traditional knowledge. Yeah to be any protection for. So I think there are two questions in there. I think the first question is, is there something in the uh, innovation value chain that the IP system is, is missing? And I think there is. Uh, and I could give you many examples. I'll give you one quick one. You know, uh, the Bella people, a, a, a landless people in Mali, notice that a certain form of wild rice, which they harvested did not suffer from blight while all the cultivars all the cultivated varieties of of uh, rice were affected by blight now one to cut a long story short 
an Indian scientist actually, bred that um, genetic resistance into a variety. And a, 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 a scientist at the University of California, San Diego, isolated the gene responsible for that. Now, and by the way, she behaved in an incredibly honourable way in trying to, you know, get some value back to the, uh, the Bella people. But the point is this, that are we going to reward the original imperial observation that this variety of rice, wild rice, is not affected by blight when others are? I think that's a scientific observation. That's a scientific method. And I think there is a missing piece in the coverage of the intellectual property system of innovative activity for certain forms of traditional knowledge. Now, again, it's a question of balance. You know, you can't go overboard about this. You have to identify them. And the second question in there is genetic resources, and which are physical property. They're not intellectual property, genetic resources. And they're governed by a regime, you know, the CBD, by the FAO's International Treaty, um, and those physical resources are, um, you know, subject to certain rules. Uh, and in our area, the question is whether there should be in a compulsory disclosure obligation to say where you, the, your, what the origin of the genetic resources are. We've been going so long from, for that question um, that, um, you know, the risk is that synthetic biology will bypass this question. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Actor. <coughs> and a counterfeiting uh, trade agreement act was going to pass. A similar law was going to pass in the United States. Social media just went crazy. And the people in, in the parliament or in Congress, too many people, those are vote, voters. Uh, I'm just I'm going to get killed for this vote. So basically what a lot of people thought, in fact, in Congress, everyone had agreed they were going to pass it before this happened. Yeah. Um, is that social media now going to be something which is, whoever wants to stop something can use it uh, perhaps inappropriately? Yeah, yeah. It's a great example. Actor and SOPA were really watershed moments, I think, because as you say, you had bipartisan supporting Congress for something that ended up being stopped by this huge social media campaign. Um, well, look, I think we're living with uh, new realities and we're getting used to them uh, and uh, we're pondering the question of, which is not a very popular question in the United States of America, of, quote, regulation, unquote, you know, and uh, I, I personally, as an, as an external party to the United States of America, um, say, would think that this is a big challenge for the United States of America because there's a lot of new activity out there. And, and Americans, if I can make a really broad generalisation, they don't like regulation too much. You know, they believe uh, they have an article of faith in the market, the market's capacity to be able to regulate problems. And you only really regulate something when there's a market failure or, uh, you know, the market's really gone the wrong direction. You need to correct it and create fair competition and so on. Uh, you know, excuse, forgive the summary of American political thinking, you know, excuse me. But um, now look, if you 
maintained that view, uh, you had massive new social and economic challenges arising from new technologies. You've named one, uh, this capacity to mobilise uh, people all around the world in favour or against a certain position. And to what extent does that affect our fundamental institutions of democracy? Um, and uh, that's a huge question. You know, and to what extent in all of that is the information credible, authentic, or uh, has integrity, the fake news problem? Uh, and that's a fantastically complex problem, you know, I, I think. And, uh, and it's got lots of implications for intellectual property. I mean, the, one example of the implication is deep fakes. You know, uh, I am told that you can make a film uh, using a character who is deceased. Um, and, in fact, it happened in Star Wars with Carrie Fisher, I think, for a part of the, uh, of the film, on the basis of deep fake technology reconstructing and we've all seen the the um deep fake uh, speech of president obama when he's you know it looks perfectly credible and it's not making it now uh in for intellectual property who owns the performance you know and can you do that can you take someone's performance um at past performances and make a new performance out of them do you require permission you know, these are huge questions. So uh, I think that here we are at a moment where, uh, you know, technology is way out in, ahead of regulation, you know, to use a, a general term. Um, and if the US adopts its traditional approach, I'm not sure it will, but if it did, then you're going to find that other countries start making, or regions start making rules that are going to bind the US de facto. And I think the example of that is the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. So the Europeans got in there and they made this. Now, because it's such a sizable market that everyone wants to be in, everyone had to adopt, adapt their systems to the European Union's GDPR. And once you do that, well, you might as well adapt your system for the world because it becomes the de facto world rule. Uh, so here I think we've got a question for new technologies of regulatory competition that we're going to see between the blocks, you know, between the United States, between Europe, between China, Japan to some extent. All right. The one problem with the idea that, that we want the marketplace to do, the marketplace requires property. So if you remove the property, you don't have a marketplace. You just have everyone taking uh no, I, so, look, I quite agree with you you know that's my view anyway you know and i think that's been the case since neolithic times yeah all right so <laughs> net exporting countries net importing countries i think there used to be a view uh, i had the view is that that affected what the country felt about uh, net ip exporting net ip importing uh it would affect how the country like like the netherlands is is net importing and they're less protective of IP in the European Union than others. Is that, that any sort of indication well, look, what's going on? I'm now? going to make a, a controversial comment here. I think it's not a good indicator, you know, and I tell, tell you why. I mean, there, a lot of countries used to, India used to say, oh, frequently, you know, 80% of our patents are foreign, you know, our, our patent applications are foreign. 
Uh, and my answer to that, by the way, it's the same for us, 90% Australia, 90% Canada, you know, it's not like it's just developing countries. My answer to that is, well, that's normal, you know, because what you are doing with that statistic is measuring your domestic capacity against the whole of the rest of the world. So it's pretty normal that your people are generating only 10% or 20% of the of the patent applications as against 90% in the rest of the world. So I don't think it's a good indicator of anything. Um, and um, there is only, we, we know that the only countries that have, you know, a, a surplus of domestic applications over foreign applications are uh, United States, which hovers, you know, around the 50%, China, which has a huge domestic, uh, you know, number of applications, Japan um, and Sweden some time to time. So, you know, we're all in the same basket here of, uh, you know, measuring one state's capacity against the rest of the world. Okay. Uh, by the way, that China idea that has the most applications, they actually pay people to apply for a patent. So that skewers that a little bit. But, okay, arbitration, is that in terms of the future of IP litigation, are more people going to go to and less people, because it's generally... Um, look, mediation, uh, yes, more yeah. than arbitration, I would say. Uh, but let's face it, um, uh, this, we're dealing with competition here. And in, in certain cases, the aim of one of the litigants is going to be to crush the other party and preferably to push them out of the market. Now, you may find that a reprehensible name, uh, aim, but that is how, you know, some corporations view competition. Uh, and in those circumstances, if they have the resources, I'm pretty sure they're not going to go to arbitration or mediation. They're going to go to all-out warfare via litigation and they'll sue them every and every jurisdiction and crush them. So that's always going to be there. But then you have people who might say rationally, you know, well, we've got multi-jurisdictional litigation here uh, and it doesn't make sense for us to spend all this money on uh, on litigation over the same, essentially the same matter in, in 10 different countries. Apple, Samsung, uh, you know, or 20 different countries. So let's agree to choose a single procedure that we'll manage uh, and we'll regulate, we'll agree that that regulates the question between us only uh, for the world. And even more sensible is the possibility of sitting down now uh, and having a mediation, a facilitated negotiation. And that's very interesting because, you know, on the whole, and it's a very broad figures, but on the whole, mediation is producing 80% uh, settlements, something like this. Now, if you look at, uh, I think, statistics in many litigation systems, particularly discovery systems, then about 80% are settled before they get to trial. And why? Because, well, discovery has thrown up, you know, a sufficient amount of information for people to be able to evaluate their positions in a much better manner, a much more ran rational manner. Mediation is doing the same by a different process. Okay. Uh, pandemic, uh, what effect, if any, will that have on IP licensing, litigation, whatever in the future? Well, uh, lots, I think, you know. 
um, you, you know, we do, I think we're at a very early stage in being able to understand the profound impacts, social and economic impacts that the pandemic is having. Uh, but one of the major questions, of course, to surface immediately was access. Uh, and uh, there, my, in my view, people put the cart before the horse. Um, I think there's a question of sequencing here. So everyone's out there yabbering on about uh, access. Uh, uh, what is there to have access to? You know, there's no vaccine and there is no effective and approved therapeutic. That can change. It can change next week. But it's unlikely to change next week uh, for vaccines at any rate. Um, so uh, I think we should have been saying as policymakers and rational people around the world, who we're in a, in a spot of bother here. We've got a virus which is lethal and which is highly contagious. Uh, and we've got no vaccine and no therapeutic. Uh, so let's focus on that. And let's focus on innovation. Now, when you come to innovation, of course, a very complex ecosystem. And 70% and of innovation is funded and performed by the private sector on average worldwide. Uh, and that means you're gonna have to work with many different players and in very many different ways with market incentives, plus government sponsorship, because that's always played an important role in innovation as well whether it's a space program or, you know, uh, basic research in the biomedical sciences. So um, I think we've got the sequencing, we've had the sequencing wrong and everyone rushed off, got on the bandwagon and said access, 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 when there's nothing to have access to. Now that said, um, you know, people have challenged me on that view and said, oh yeah, but should they prepare for uh, the access problem? Well, we know that there are provisions in the international instruments and we know there are provisions in national laws, which I think will prove to be perfectly adequate to deal with this situation. And I'm no, no doubt that governments will act uh, if the case arises. But uh, just this morning, I was speaking to someone and I said, and they challenged me on this and said, you know, you need access, uh, what, what's wrong with preparing? I said, well, okay, do you know where the therapeutics coming from? whether it's going to be uh, invented in China or the United States or Europe or Japan, you know, surely you want to look at the circumstances of the situation before you regulate and, and, and take a position on it. It could be entirely different. Do you know whether it's going to come out of a publicly funded uh, research project or whether it's going to come out of an entirely private innovation initiative? I think we need to, you know, be measured here. We need to act swiftly when the time comes, but we need to know what we're acting about. Okay. Um, two quick questions. You mentioned Japan. Japan is an interesting situation. When I first started getting involved in IP, everyone was saying Japan, Japan. It was actually going to overtake the United States as the biggest economy in the world. Uh, uh, you know, I put on this conference and everyone wanted to know what Japan is doing. Now, no one hear <laughs> less what Japan is doing. What has happened? I mean, if, if in fact IP drives economic, um, Japan had the IP. What happened to Japan that all of a sudden they're sort of in a corner by themselves? Yeah. Well, look, I wouldn't write Japan off, that's all. 
Um, you know, I think Japan is ex enormously strong technologically. It's got really great technology and, and it's a, a society that's geared to it and people think in these terms in the private sector, uh, the government uh, and the universities all are very conscious of the development, the, the, you know, the development of technology. Let's remember that in 2002, Prime Minister Koizumi then declared that Japan would be in uh, the 21st century an IP-based nation. And that, in, in, if you translate that into other terms, what he was saying is basically um, that they believed in the commoditization of knowledge and new technologies. And that's what's happening. So, uh, you know, I think the Japanese are, if I may say, it's you know, not for me to say, extraordinarily smart in thinking about these questions. And I think they're extraordinarily advanced technologically, uh, the Japanese. And I have been going there every year, same time with JIPA, the Japan Intellectual Property Association. They put on a great program every year. They always show me some pieces of Japanese technology and I'm just bowled over each time of their with the, the way they think about these questions. So why are we in the situation that, that, that people tend to ignore it a bit? Well, I think it's probably, you know, that, that everyone's focusing on the neighbour a bit, uh, China, um, and you've had since that time, just the, just the time that you mentioned, the 1980s, you've had the rise of China. And so, you know, a lot of focus has turned there. But uh, let's remember, Japan's a huge player in innovation, huge. Uh, let, me, let me throw out something. One reason that this may have happened is the view of Japanese corporations is it's very hierarchical. The people on the bottom just be quiet and do what is supposed to be said, whereas uh, Silicon Valley, everyone else is you're getting all these views from everybody, and it, it, what you do is you produce a better mousetrap. Is there any truth to that? Say it again here. Yeah. All right. I'm a corporation. Yeah. And the culture of the corporation is the junior people don't say anything. They listen. Yeah. Um, and the senior people make all the decisions. Silicon Valley, other places, actually, everyone is talking. There's no hierarchy on talking. And you're going to get more ideas into the flow that way. And then you can use those. Uh, and Japan is just more limited in what they're getting. Is, is there any truth to that, do you think? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, it is a bottom-up culture. You know, things go through the layers and come up, uh, and by the time it gets to the top, it's been pretty well filtered. But I think they're great, showing great, um, you know, great innovation. Let me give you one example that was in the book of, of um, now the names may escape me, but the two founders of Sony Corporation, you know, and one was a technical genius, Ibuka, uh, and the other was a business genie, genius, Marita. And one day Marita was sitting in, Mr. Marita was sitting in his office and Mr. Ibuka walked in and he had two speakers strapped to his side and a turntable, you know, a tape turntable strapped to his stomach and some earphones on. And Marita said, what are you doing? Yeah. And he said, well, look, when I work, I like to listen to music. When I work, I also like to move around. And so Marita then 
immediately called the engineers from his R&D lab and said, make me the smallest, you know, turntable and hearing device that people can wear when they're mobile, which was the Walkman. And think where we are now in the evolution of that down the track. So that was a great example, I thought, of, you know, tech, the technical genius being combined with the business genius of seeing the opportunity. And I think they've done plenty of good things. And, you know, I wouldn't... Yeah, plenty of good things as well. Uh, final question. Uh, where are we? What does the future look like in terms of IP development or what's going on? Um, would you generally, are you generally optimistic? You're generally pessimistic. You think it'd be pretty much the same what? I'm generally optimistic because I am generally optimistic in most things, uh, in all things. Uh, but look, I think what we're seeing is, you know, there are some views out there. I think Tom Friedman even expressed in one of his books that, that um, you know, the IP system is finished and uh, the digital revolution has really introduced so much change that nobody cares about classical intellectual property rights anymore. Well, what I would say about that view is it's anti-empirical. Everything gives us, and in the course of the last 10 years at least, the growth rates in demand for intellectual property titles, classical intellectual property rights, has far exceeded the growth rate of the world economy. Uh, there's no shortage of demand for classical intellectual property rights, patents, trademarks, designs, trade secrets, copyright, there's none. However, uh, that said, you know, maybe we're not capturing everything that's going on in the digital economy. You know, maybe we can capture a lot with the classical system, which was basically built for industrial technology, but maybe there are layers. And, you know, the salient example for me is data. Uh, and I think, you know, there are a lot of fundamental uh, Proprietary questions about data and its utilization in the and it's of fundamental importance in the digital economy. So I see it rather as that we may be adding layers of intellectual property rights rather than saying, "Oh, the old system it's redundant and we we'll throw it out." It's not. It's you know we might be we're getting new questions which may require new approaches. Now, historically successful with that. I mean, I think the European database regulation was a bomber. You know, it failed. Um, it was a solution in search of an, uh, a problem. And um, I think the semiconductor layout design uh, was not a very successful new intellectual property, right? So we, have, we know we have to be careful here uh, and we have to proceed cautiously. Uh, but my biggest worry, and I'm talking, my biggest worry would be do we have the capacity as an international community to address these questions which are preeminently international, at least one part of them, if we're going to work as an integrated, um, in interconnected digital world economy, which it is, do we have the capacity? The moment we don't. Now, why that's, you know, subject for another of your podcasts, uh, Hugh, um, but it's a, it's a huge question, uh, and I think it's a mistake to regard it in a simplistic manner of saying it's one country, one person, or one administration. It's not. It's much broader than that, and there are a lot of uh, elements and dimensions to it, uh, which is for another time. 
Um, but that's the challenge. We don't have the international capacity to move at the moment, and we need it. Okay. Well, that has been, this has been fantastic, Francis. Thanks so much. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. And it's, uh, uh, maybe, maybe we'll have another one sometime. There seem to be a lot of issues we haven't hit. By the way, on that last question, is that, is that particular leader will not be reelected? And in fact, uh, I think he may not even be in office at that time. That's how bad things are starting to go. But uh, that's just between you and me. We don't want that. That's right. no, no comment. Uh, but uh, thanks so much. And uh, I'll just tell the audience, I've known Francis, I don't know, 40, 35 years, uh, yeah. 19, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Uh, I was always tremendously impressed with him, both in terms of his intellect, how he applied things, and what a great guy he is. So thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Hugh, my great pleasure. It's great to see you. You're a, a, a wonderful, trusted friend. So I'm delighted to have been able to have this opportunity to talk to you. Okay, thank you.